At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 12, Part 2, the 1948 Election. I'm pre-recording this show because I'm in the People's Republic of China for my honeymoon. My wife is actually a Chinese citizen, and I'm looking forward to checking out some of the Cold War sites while I'm in China, and Mao's tomb. So when I get back, I will let you know how it went. So last episode, we spoke about some of the similarities and differences between the election of 1948 and 2016. We talked a little about post-war America and the opposition that Truman faced within the Democratic Party towards his continued presidency. Today, I, could, I want to continue by looking at the opposition he faced in the South. The Deep South at this time was extremely poor. Many places lacked paved roads, electricity, plumbing, and running clean water. Hunger, illiteracy, and ignorance were commonplace. The South had been slowly industrializing, and cities like Atlanta and Birmingham started to resemble cities in the North like Pittsburgh and Buffalo. However, agriculture remained dominant in the South, and large landholders maintained positions of power and prestige. Traditional conservatism and agrarian popularism competed for control of essentially a one-party system. The Democrats had ruled the South since the end of Reconstruction in the late 1870s. The most controversial issue in the South at this time was lynching. Lynching in the South wasn't simply murder. It was a terror tactic. It was a, a form of public execution witnessed by assembled crowds of men, women, and children. It was a message of hate and power, a graphic reminder of who held absolute power in society, and just how second-class blacks continued to be in the South. Between 1882 and 1963, 3,446 blacks and 1,297 whites were lynched. For decades, Congress tried to act, but the southern states always found ways to defeat anti-lynching bills. Nearly 200 anti-lynching bills were introduced to Congress, and only three passed the House. Seven presidents between 1890 and 1952 petitioned Congress to pass federal law to stop lynching in the South, ultimately failing. It wasn't until the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that the federal government was able to finally start cracking down on the practice. Clifford and Rowe had underestimated Southern Democrats' willingness to abandon segregation. In the 1860s, the South had, of course, waged a civil war to maintain the practice of slavery and the racial order, and Truman's civil rights was once again threatening that racial order. And like in the 1860s, the South would organize its political power to once again fight against change. Clifford and Rowe had forgotten the 1928 election. The South had rejected the Democratic candidate for president, Alfred E. Smith, because of his Catholic faith and opposition to a prohibition. Texas, Florida, Tennessee, North Carolina, and Virginia abandoned the Democratic Party in favor of Republicans and Herbert Hoover. Governor of South Carolina, Strom Thurmond, quickly emerged as the leader of the anti-civil rights movement in the Deep South. Thurmond was 46 in 1948. 
neither smoked nor drank, and he exercised nearly an hour every day. He was also a, fit, a health fitness buff, uh, which was rare at, during this time. He attended Clemson Agricultural College of South Carolina, where he graduated with a degree in horticulture. When he was 22, Thurman fathered a mixed-race daughter, Essie Mae Washington, with his family's housekeeper, Carrie Butler, then 16 years old. Thurman paid for the girl's college education and provided other support. Essie Mae Washington was raised by her maternal aunt and uncle and was not told about her Thurman as her father until she was in high school when she first met him. Essie Mae remained a closely guarded secret through Tr Thurman's life until his death in 2003. Thurman studied law with his father as a legal apprentice and was admitted to the South Carolina Bar in 1930. He was appointed as the Edgefield Town and County Attorney serving from 1930 to 1938. In 1933, Thurman was elected to South Carolina Senate and represented Edgefield until he was elected to the 11th Circuit Judgeship. In 1942, after the U.S. formally entered World War II, Thurman resigned from the bench to serve in the U.S. Army, rising to lieutenant colonel. He served in the Battle of Normandy, where he landed his glider attached to the 82nd Airborne. After the war, he came home to South Carolina to be elected governor of the state. South Carolina at the time had a population of about 50% white and 50% black. It was famous, of course, for firing the opening shots of the, of the Civil War. South Carolina intended to resist civil rights. They believed that civil rights was the first step on the road to becoming a police state. Thurman wasn't wholly against the civil rights program, though, as he agreed that lynching was both illegal and, Im and morally repugnant, and he had a strong record of arresting and prosecuting lynchers. He had even taken the liberal position of providing funds for Negro education and literacy. He believed that the poverty was the biggest issue facing the South and that raising the standard of living for both whites and blacks would improve race relations. Thurman was a big proponent of the New Deal. In many ways, Wallace and Thurman had many similar views when it came to the economy and the needs of everyday people. Similar to today to how Trump and Bernie Sanders opposed trade deals despite their opposite positions on the ideological spectrum. Thurman disavowed racism and white supremacy, but he opposed the federal government becoming involved in what he considered local murders. Moreover, Thurman believed that the federal government had no right by which to regulate the relations between the races. Southern leaders had met in Jackson to decide on what to do about Truman's position on civil rights. Some leaders wanted to leave the party. Others saw fighting against civil rights as a lost cause. The meeting eventually adjourned to wait to see what happened at the Democratic Convention in July. However, there was a res resolution passed that if the Democratic Party platform adopted civil rights, they would hold a separate convention in Birmingham on July the 17th to adopt a platform and a leader acceptable to the South. The other new political party, led by Wallace, began his bid for the presidency by organizing a new political party, the Progressives, although their name wasn't officially codified until the convention that summer. No one suspected that Wallace would win, but they saw him as a spoiler like Ross Perot in 1992 or Ralph Nader in 2000. Large crowds came out to see him. 5,500 gathered to see him in Ann Arbor, 6,000 in Minneapolis, 8,000 in Detroit, 20,000 paid to see him at Chicago Stadium, 10,000 greeted him on the streets of Berkeley, and another 20,000 came out to see him speak in L.A. 
The New York Times calculated Wallace to be very competitive in both New York and California, with enough in New York to split the ticket and throw New York into the Republican column, and no Democratic nominee since 1856 had won the election without New York, minus Wilson in 1916. Pro-Wallace candidate Leo Isaacson won a landslide victory in a special House election for the Bronx against a Democratic nominee. This set off alarm bells in Washington, and many saw the loss as the canary in the coal mine. One of Wallace's biggest challenges was his unfavorable press, though. Wallace needed to get his message out, and the national press, which was heavily influenced by the ADA, wouldn't help. Wallace would need to raise money to buy airtime, pamphlets, buttons, mailers, and hire staff to actually run that campaign. Unlike the Democrats and Republicans, he had to build a party from the ground up in a short amount of time. Thousands of volunteers across the country rallied to support Wallace. By the election, the progressives would have 100,000 dues-paying members. However, real money came from wealthy investors like Anita McCormick Blaine, the 82-year-old widow and heir to the international harvester fortune who gave 500000 or roughly $50 million in 2016 money. Politically, Wallace started making mistakes, though. The biggest was his acceptance of Marx's followers and when the American Communist Party officially endorsed him for president in 1947. He took a step further and accepted their endorsement. This was compounded by the fact that his campaign was infiltrated by the NKVD, agents such as Michael Strait, a newspaper editor. Wallace's campaign manager, uh, Benet Baldwin, was himself a communist in league with the American Communist Party. This, as you can imagine, enraged many Americans, and many accused Wallace of being a crypto-communist himself. Wallace, given his spirituality and belief in the democratic process, wasn't a communist from what we can gather from history, though. What made the situation even more alarming was that it was an open secret that the American Communist Party received direction from Moscow. So similar to Putin's quasi-endorsement of Trump, today Wallace was Moscow's favorite candidate in the election. Wallace complicated his image problems further by writing an open letter to Stalin suggesting a reduction in armaments, an end to the arms trade, reopening trade between the U.S. and USSR, the free movement of people and ideas, and a policy of peaceful coexistence. Because of this, Wallace continued to be hammered in the national press. The Washington Post alleged that Wallace's campaign was a plot hatched by Stalin in order to foster opposition to the Marshall Plan. Eleanor Roosevelt also came out strongly against Wallace. She claimed that his party's base supporters were made up of communists and that he was politically inept and a follower of appeasement. Wallace was also hurt by the communist coup in Czechoslovakia and the Berlin blockade. Wallace tried to blame the coup on the American government, but the press didn't buy it, nor did the vast majority of the American people. Wallace was also roasted alive by the press for a series of strange letters he had written to a Russian mystic which illustrated Wallace's beliefs and or interests in Eastern mysticism. When questioned about these letters, Wallace refused to comment. America at this time, in contrast today, was a very Protestant Christian nation, so many Americans found these kinds of ideas alien or strange. In 1946, 24% of Democrats preferred Wallace to Truman. In June 1947, 13% had favored Wallace to Truman. By January of 48, that number had fallen to 7 and to 6% by June 1948. More importantly, 51% of Americans believed that the Progressive Party was dominated by communists. Public opposition to Wallace's campaign also heated up in April. Picketers in Indiana broke into the auditorium where Wallace was to speak and punched Baldwin, his campaign manager, in the face. 
In Des Moines, protesters egged Wallace. In South Carolina, a young Wallace supporter, Robert New, had his throat slit for being a, quote, end lover. In Indianapolis, Wallace couldn't speak because his supporters openly clashed in fistfights with the anti-communist Catholic war veterans. So as you can see, the violence of Trump's events is not as unprecedented as cable news like CNN would like us to believe. In August, Wallace decided to move his campaign south. He didn't hope to win any southern states, but he did hope to convince more blacks and northern liberals to vote for him, showing his ability to stand up to the south and to push forward the civil rights agenda. Wallace was met with more violence and hostility. In North Carolina, Wallace was pelted with eggs and vegetables. Later, one of Wallace's bodyguards had a knife pulled on him and was cut eight times. Like the Republicans and Democrats, the progressives held their convention in Philadelphia to reach the largest television audience. Unlike the Republicans and Democratic convention, though, the progressive convention had only one camera covered only by NBC who covered parts of the convention versus the around-the-clock coverage of the Republican and Democratic conventions. The convention had very few politicians outside of New York, but it was a who's who of the left-wing American politics at the time. Two future U.S. senators were there, including George McGovern, the future Democratic presidential nominee, and W.D. Du Bois was also there in attendance. Much of the rhetoric at the convention was similar to much of the rhetoric of the far left today in American politics. As one delegate stated, quote, A big business oligarchy rules both parties and is expanding its monopolies on a world scale under the protection of an American military machine lubricated by Arabian oil and paid for by the American taxpayers, close quote. The Progressive Party platform called for an end to the draft. It called for an end to anti-Soviet hysteria, disarmament, abolishing America's atomic bombs, ending segregation and Jim Crow laws, publicly financing 25 million new homes, amnesty for World War II draft dodgers, and negotiations with the Soviet Union. It also called for the repeal of Taft-Hartley, national health care, the vote for 18-year-olds, statehood for Hawaii and Alaska, home rule for D.C., and reparations for Japanese Americans. They also called for the nationalization of the banks, railroads, merchant marine, aircraft manufacturers, and full taxation of capital gains. It goes as no surprise that the Progressive Convention was received unfavorably by the press. Cartoonists across the country drew Wallace and his followers as communists, and accounts from within the convention emphasized the influence of communists at the convention. I want to take a quick break here, and again, thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends or spread the word about us on Facebook or Twitter, or take a moment to visit our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, all one word. As you can imagine, me and my colleague invest a lot of our personal time and resources into bringing you the show. Buying books, recording equipment, hosting the podcast, and the website all adds up. The average episode takes about 10 to 15 hours of work to create. And just like political campaigns, this podcast is powered by donors. I haven't located any Texas oil men yet that want to fund me yet. But feel free to reach out, ExxonMobil, if you're listening. So if you enjoy the show, please help support us through Patreon on the website so that we can keep the show coming to you. Even a small donation can go a long way. Moreover, when you visit the website, be sure to fill out our survey so that you can help us bring you a better show. Now back to the campaign. The biggest threat to Truman in the fall, though, was not the progressives or the Southern Democrats, but the Republicans. The Republicans had won the midterm elections of 1946, but had struggled over the last two decades to win office. Many people still blame the party for the Great Depression. 
the Republicans struggled to attract working-class and middle-class voters as they were viewed as the party of the rich, a theme still echoed by many detractors today. The party was more or less divided between two major factions, the Northeastern Republicans and the Midwestern Republicans. The Northeastern Republicans were more liberal and were much more willing to make peace with the New Deal. They also favored a more international approach to foreign policy. The Midwestern faction was more conservative, more frugal when it came to fiscal policy, and wanted to roll back the New Deal. On a foreign policy, they were isolationist. The Midwestern stronghold was Congress, where they controlled most of the, the seats. The Northeast had money and often won the presidential nomination struggles. Their superior marketing skills and large delegate counts for New York and New Jersey gave them an upper hand at the convention. Wendell Wilkie in 1940 and Dewey in 1944 had both been from the Northeastern camp. In the presidential primary, there were three main Republican contenders, Senator Robert Taft of Ohio, the governor of New York, Thomas E. Dewey, and governor of Minnesota, Harold Stetson, with a number of minor figures like Governor Earl Warren of California, the future Supreme Court Justice, or Senator Vandenberg, who were black horse candidates who stood a chance at winning in a contested convention. A number of people had spoken about Eisenhower running, but he bowed out, not wishing to run. Senator Taft was the son of former President and Supreme Court Justice William Howard Taft. He represented the conservative soul of the Republican Party in the 1940s, so much so that he was nicknamed Mr. Republican. He was known for his sharp intellect, but people found him cold and unapproachable, uh, but he was very influential amongst the Republican Party. Truman is said to have wished to run against Dewey versus Taft as he saw Taft as a more dangerous opponent. Taft was very isolationist and one of the main opponents to the Marshall Plan and the Bretton Woods Agreement. He was hostile to organized labor and had co-sponsored the Taft-Hartley Act in response to the strikes of 1946. Taft also opposed the minimum wage and federal regulations on business. He championed home ownership, federal aid for education, and universal health care, although outside of the scope of the federal government. Dewey had grown up in Owosso, Michigan, with a population of 8,000, the only child of a small local newspaper editor, uh, George Dewey, and his wife. Dewey came from a politically connected family. His father chaired the county GOP committee as, his, as well as his paternal grandfather, George Martin Dewey, who had helped to found the Republican Party in 1854. Dewey was too young to serve in World War I. He attended the University of Michigan and wanted to become a professional singer, but instead decided to enroll in law school at Columbia in New York. Graduating in 1925, he joined a private firm. Law was profitable and safe, but the young Dewey desired to make his mark on the world. Dewey became involved in New York City politics following his father and grandfather's steps as a Republican becoming assistant DA. In 1932, the Republicans were swept out of office. The New York DA retired other than serve out the rest of his term, and Dewey became an acting DA. Such lame-deck sessions typically count for little, but Dewey would make the most of it. Dewey made headlines by prosecuting the notorious mobster and bootlegger Irving Waxy Gordon. However, despite his fame, he quickly returned to private life at the end of his term. The Democrat that replaced him was corrupt and unpopular, and in 1937, Dewey ran for DA and won. Dewey prosecuted a number of leading underworld figures such as Jimmy Hines and Vice King and father of the mob, Lucky Luciano. He also prosecuted the head of Wall Street, Richard Whitney, for embezzlement. During this time, Dewey was in considerable danger as the gangster Dutch Schultz had planned to assassinate him. But Dutch was killed by his fellow mobsters before he could spring his trap. I don't know if it's true, 
or, or accurate, but I read that Dewey is the person that Harvey Dent or Two-Face is based off of from the Batman comic book series. Dewey ran for governor in 1942 and won, becoming the governor of New York. In 1944, he won the party's nomination and ran for president. He lost but had a respectable showing against FDR, doing the better than any other Republican in recent years. Dewey was perceived by many as cold and aloof and condescending in many ways similar to how people viewed Mitt Romney in 2012. Said one critic, Dewey is a self-made man who worships his creator. Dewey kept his personal life extremely private. Americans might see him at a Yankees game with his kids, but they didn't know if he liked baseball or not. Dewey had a 50-50 shot at winning the nomination. He had done surprisingly well in his run against FDR in 1944, but the Republican Party had never renominated a losing candidate. Dewey's plan for the presidency was to play it safe, taking middle positions and avoiding strong positions that would repel people. He would rely heavily on good relations with the party bosses in Philadelphia, where the convention was being held, and on advertising firms. Harold Stanson was the youngest governor of Minnesota ever at 31. A big man and ambitious man at six foot three inches tall, he was very energetic and drank a ton of coffee and didn't smoke, which was rare at the time. During World War II, he had served in the Pacific under Admiral Halsey and had participated in the founding of the United Nations in 1945 in San Francisco. He had begun his campaign for president in 1946, which was unheard of in those days and considered in bad taste. He raised thousands of dollars in small donations and attracted some big corporate sponsors like Pillsbury. Stanson also became the first American politician to campaign by airplane for the presidency. Unlike Taft, he disagreed with isolationism and supported the Marshall Plan. He also favored strong unions, tax credits for small business, and government housing programs. He hated the communists and thought the American Communist Party should be banned in America. Primaries in 1948 were a way to test candidates to see if they could win in a real election, but the nomination was won or lost at the party convention, unlike today. Dewey decided to make an early showing by winning in New Hampshire's primary to build some momentum to the nomination. Dewey easily won the state and began beating Stanson picking up six delegates, while Stanson got two. The next primary was in May for Wisconsin. Dewey predicted that General MacArthur, who was currently living in Japan as the U.S. military governor there, would probably win the primary. MacArthur was one of America's greatest war heroes and had grown up there as a teenager. Taft would have to win in Ohio, his home state, to stay in the hunt, whereas Stanson would have to do well in Wisconsin and Nebraska to build momentum to even be considered at the convention. Dewey stopped in Wisconsin for only two days and made a couple of radio addresses there, deciding to conserve his resources. General MacArthur couldn't campaign as he was 7,000 miles away and refused to leave his duties in Japan, but was still expected to run. Nonetheless, the hardworking door-to-door politician Stanson surprised everyone by winning Wisconsin, and a week later he won in Nebraska. MacArthur's defeat in his home state of Wisconsin essentially knocked him out of the race. Dewey avoided battling the Ohio primary and decided to let Taft and Stanson fight it out. In the end, Taft won, but it was a Perrick victory as Stanson still walked away with nine delegates. Yet both campaigns had expended a lot of resources on the race. Taft was written off as a serious candidate by many Republicans but despite his decision to carry on. Taft was also subsequently hurt by, his, by the communist coup in Czechoslovakia. It made his isolationism seem like a handicap in any national election. Dewey knew it would be vital for him to win the Oregon primary to stop Stanson from becoming a serious threat at the convention. 
Do we would invest heavily in the state buying ads, billboards, and radio spots. He invested some 150000 into Oregon, buying some 126 billboards, as well as hundreds of political spots, a 30-minute radio broadcast, and even local TV spots. Dewey personally campaigned hard in the state, making 92 speeches, speaking with fishermen, loggers, and dairy farmers, meeting the people and pressing the flesh. Focusing on a key difference between them, Stanson's call to outlaw the Communist Party. Dewey declared his opposition to this position as un-American and in violation of the First Amendment, the Constitution, or the freedom of speech. Dewey argued if America outlawed the Communist Party, it would be no better than the totalitarian powers it had fought against in World War II. The race was very close until Dewey finally agreed to a national radio debate between Stanson. Stanson had been pushing for such a debate for weeks, but Dewey wanted a debate on his, on his terms. He didn't want to be an in-person debate where he would look small and weak in, in, in contrast to the tall and strong Stanson, hence a radio debate. Moreover, Dewey only wanted to debate on one issue, outlawing the Communist Party. Dewey had taken a huge gamble, though. Dewey's stance against outlawing the Communist Party had not been focus group tested or polled. He had taken a bold position based on conviction. An estimated 80 million people listened to the net debate nationwide. At the debate, Dewey made wor short work of Stanson. Stanson had not come prepared, and it was clear. It sounded as if he didn't know what he was talking about. When Dewey hammered him with facts, Stanton had sounded cool and glib, whereas Dewey at times fumbled over his words, but the force of his convictions led most listeners to conclude that he won the debate. Dewey ended up winning the primary with 53% of the vote. The Republican convention had great weather. Although the giant elephant balloon at the, at the entrance had deflated, a bad omen. The convention had scheduled, like today's, a number of speeches and the platform adoption. The real business of the convention, though, didn't take place on the floor, but hotel rooms, on the telephone, in hallways, and heated discussions between various state delegations. It happened at odd hours in smoky rooms with glasses of whiskey. Knowledge was power. Knowing the factions, their members, who wanted what, and who hated who, who was loyal to who, and who would, was ready to betray, along with the rules and timing, was the key to victory. TV was a factor at the convention, as five cameras broadcasted the event. The traditional film cameras were, were there as well. Dewey, understanding the power of TV, told his managers to stay away from the cameras when negotiating with rival camps. The GOP also instructed delegates to keep their clothes neat and to keep their shoes on and to take toothpicks out of their mouths. A number of delegates and newspeople as well wore makeup, which many commentators saw as the feminization of the country. The 1,094 delegates who had assembled for the convention were congressmen, governors, party officials, party workers, and other appointees appointed for hard work, bribery, or as payback. Though many of the delegates were pledged to, to a candidate, that pledge was negotiable. The Republican convention also had the very first televised news conference in history by Dewey. Dewey also committed one of the very first TV blunders when, after winning the nomination. Many said that he virtually ignored his wife as if she wasn't even there. This glaring omission was communicated to those at the convention and the television audience of millions. In all, an estimated 10 million people watched the Republican convention. Another big change in the convention in 1948 was the presence of women. There were 113 female delegates to the convention, which was a record at the time. Dewey's convention strategy was simple. Generate at least 400 votes on the first ballot and at all costs avoid going beyond more than three ballots. 
Dewey would need 548 votes out of the 1,094 delegates to win the nomination. Dewey did hold an early lead in the vote count with between three to 400 votes on the first ballot. But early leads could evaporate, as his lead had in 1940 when he lost to Wendell Wilkie. The more ballots, the less likely Dewey, Taft, or Stanson would capture the nomination. As the frontrunner, Dewey had to maintain his position in the lead. No contender who had lost votes between the first ballot and the second ballot had ever come back to win the convention. Taft and Stanson had to keep their delegates loyal on the initial ballots. If they lost any, they were finished. The first ballot had Dewey with 434, Taft with 224, and Stanson with 157. This was followed by a brief break. Typically at this point, favorite Sun candidates dropped out early, like Earl Warren for California, and 1948 was no exception. Dewey picked up New Jersey, while Taft picked up most of Illinois. By the end of the second ballot, Dewey was just 33 delegates short of clinching, clinching the nomination. On the third ballot, Earl Warren with California broke for Dewey, and it was all over. Dewey had won the nomination. Earl Warren would go on to become Dewey's running mate as vice president. The GOP platform adopted an international position on foreign policy, supporting the Marshall Plan, the UN, and nationalist China, along with support for the new nation of Israel. On domestic issues, they called for a reduction in the national debt and inflation, for an aggressive anti-monopoly action to help small businesses, for lower taxes, good labor relations, support for veterans, statehood for Alaska and Hawaii, equal rights for women, and self-government for D.C. The platform also called for the end of lynching, an end to Jim Crow, and the end of segregation in the armed services. The, la- the platform represented the center-right, Big Tent philosophy of Dewey. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 12, Part 2, the 1948 Election. Make sure you join us for our next episode, September the 15th, where we'll be looking at the Democratic Convention, the rise of the Dictocrats, the general election and its aftermath, and its long-term effects. So join us again on September the 15th as we continue to look back at the 1948 election. Also, don't forget to let your friends know about us. And help us out through supporting the show through the Patreon on our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Any donation size is accepted and appreciated, and if you have a moment, uh, fill out our survey there to help us bring you a better show. Right now, there are great deals to escape to Europe in spring and summer on direct flights to Ireland with Aer Lingus. Stay put in cool contemporary capital Dublin or head off to any of 20 amazing European cities you've always wanted to visit. Classical chic Rome, Paris, the home of romance, or London, the cutting edge of culture. Deals are for a limited time only, so hurry and book today. Smart says escape to Europe this spring and summer. Smart flies Aer Lingus. Book now at aerlingus.com. 
At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.